All right. Well, let's turn together to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. If you're a visitor this morning, I would encourage you to uh, take the blue pew Bible from the rack in front of you, and uh, you can turn to page 514. That's the page we're going to be on. At College Street Baptist Church, we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, That way it's not Pastor Chad or whoever the preacher is setting the agenda, but week after week it's the Holy Spirit directing us to what God's will is and what He wants us to learn each week. And so if you're visiting this morning, you're joining us right in the middle of our journey through Nehemiah's seemingly impossible effort to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. If you looked at your bulletin, which I hope that you do week after week, all right, there's all kinds of great announcements and reminders about what's going on in our church. Uh, you might notice in the order of worship that today's sermon is titled, The Holy City. Those of you who have been at College Street Baptist for a while might know, hopefully, I hope you do, and hopefully you're praying for this person. We have a church planting partner named Brian Powell, who is in the process of planting a church with a couple of other family pastors down in Charleston, and their church is called Holy City Church, uh, partly because Charleston is sometimes referred to as the Holy City. The reason why it's really evident if you go into downtown uh, Charleston on the peninsula is that its skyline has all of these historic steeples, all these beautiful, huge, elegant cathedrals. And I love, I love to walk around and see the architecture down there and the beauty of the stained glass windows and the giant vaulted ceilings, the ornate pulpits and uh, the, the just hulking columns that are out front of those beautiful buildings. You know that when, whenever you visit one of those old historic cathedrals, I always feel sort of a, a mixed emotion because there's this great beautiful building But many of those buildings now are no more than museums. Come Sunday morning, there are no people gathering in those buildings to fill those beautiful walls. This morning, as we look at Nehemiah's Jerusalem, the holy city has these brand new sparkling walls that they've just finished in record time. But we have to ask ourselves... Is the holy city really a city if there are no people to fill its walls? This morning, Nehemiah sets out to find the people to fill the holy city. And uh, this morning in Nehemiah, we're going to read a pretty sizable chunk. And so uh, I'm going to allow you to remain seated, not because... We're disgracing the Word of God, but so that you can give greater attention and not be distracted by, uh, you know, how long is he going to read? We're going to read for a little while. All right, so let's, we'll remain seated so we can give even greater attention to the Word of God. Beginning in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered 
to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judea, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin, of the sons of Judah, Aphiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez, and Maaseiah, the son of Baruch, son of Kol Hose, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joyariv, son of Zechariah, son of, of the Shilonite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Koliah, son of Maaseiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah, and his brothers, Men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasanua, was second over the city. Of the priests, Jediah, the son of Joyarev, Jakin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Achituv, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Adiah, the son of Jerohem, son of Peleliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Malkijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. And Amashasai, the son of Azarel, son of Achzai, son of Meshilamoth, son of Emmer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, son of Hagadolin. And of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashuv, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni, and Shabbatai, and Josabad, of the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the outside work of the house of God. And Mataniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. And Bakbukiah, the son, second among his brothers, and Abda, the son of Shamua, son of Gal- Galal, son of Jeduthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akuv, Talam, and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates, were 172. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived in Aphel, and Ziha and Gishpah were over the temple servants. The overseers of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, and of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers, as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages, with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and in Jechebziel and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Molada, and in Beth Pelet, and Hazarshual and Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag, and Mekona and its villages, in Enrimon, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zenoah, Adullam, and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Azekah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward at Michmash, Ijah, Bethel and its villages, Anathoth, Noph, 
Ananiah, Hazor, Rama, Gitayim, Hadad, Zeboim, Nebalat, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen, and certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Ido, Genethoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Maadiah, Vilgah, Shemaiah, Joyariv, Jediah, Shalu, Amak, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Benui, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Metaniah, who with his brothers were, was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakukiah and Uni and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Joachim, and Joachim the father of Eliashiv, Eliashiv the father of Joida, Joida the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadu. And then the days of Joachim were priests, heads, heads of fathers' houses, of Sariah, Mariah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehonanan, of Maluki, uh, Jonathan, of Shabani, Shabaniah, J- Joseph, and of Harim, Adna, of Marioth, Helkai, of Ido, Ido, Zechariah, of Ginnathon, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Miniamin, of Modiah, Piltai, of Bilgah, Shamua, of Shemaiah, Jehonathan, of Joyariv, Matani, of Jediah, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Amak, Eber, and Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nithanil. In the days of Eliashib, Joida, Johanan, and Jadua, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the priest, uh, the Persian. As were the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akuv were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. May God bless the reading of his inspired word. Well, back in chapter 7, when Nehemiah and the people finished the project, Nehemiah surveyed what they had done, and this is what he saw. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. As we said before, is it really a city, this holy city? If it has magnificent walls, and yet no people to fill it. This morning in today's passage, we see the holy city is filled in four ways. Number one, and this is the most obvious one. The holy city is filled with persons. The holy city is filled with persons. You know, Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12 could have been summed up with this. Nehemiah selected some people and they moved into the city. Instead, 
we get a list of names of all the people who were chosen and their families who picked up all their things and moved into the city of Jerusalem. And honestly, I'm going to admit that this week I grew a little bit weary of uh, another list of names in the book of Nehemiah. And if you thought it was a little bit mind-numbing to hear it from your English Bible, just imagine this week me sitting in my study reading these in the Hebrew Bible. Just one big block of names. Names of people who mean nothing to you, who accomplish next to nothing recordable in the Bible, nothing of great significance that they're going to accomplish in this story afterwards, and yet for some reason, God sets aside Nehemiah chapter 11 and the next half of the next chapter for all of these names of the persons who filled the holy city. And I think that this chapter is here for us. Because most of us are not going to have names that are going to go down in history to be remembered for generations and centuries. Most of us are not going to accomplish anything noteworthy in our lives. We will never have our 15 seconds of fame. We won't go on to become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or become senators or highly recognized mommy bloggers, although I still have my fingers crossed on that one. And yet here we are, today, in this place, in this town, at this time, for a reason. And I'm not pretending to know what that reason is. And you know what? I'm starting to realize from Nehemiah chapter 11 it might be okay for us not to know 100% why God has placed us here today. I don't know the reason, but guess who does? The Lord does. He knows the reason why He put Nehemiah chapter 11 and put all of these persons in the holy city at this time. He knows the reason why He put this big block of difficult-to-pronounce names in the middle of this story of Nehemiah. He knows the reason why we are here, whether He shows that reason to us or not. And that should be enough. That's faith, brothers and sisters. When God doesn't show us the reason He's doing what He's doing, and yet we trust that He has one. That we might not see His purposes, that we might be dull in comprehending His reasons, and yet we trust that He has an eternal purpose and a divine reason for each individual person that is here this morning. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I just need to be comforted in that. That God's not going to show me all the reasons for my life and what's going on in my life. But He has a reason. Because the holy city is not just filled with people, but is filled with individual persons. I was reading about this passage this week and I came upon a really good point in one of the books I was reading. Listen to what he says. It may seem tedious to us to find so many lists of genealogies and place names in Ezra and Nehemiah. 
But it reminds us again that God's work is done by individuals. By persons. Even though it's a community activity, each person in the community is important and must be given responsibility and must become an integral part of the community's activities. So the first thing that Nehemiah 11 and 12 illustrates to us is this truth that the holy city is not just filled with people, but is filled with persons. Think about how tiring this must be for God. God has determined that He's going to do His work through individual persons' lives. Tiny little people like us. Tiny little people like all the little names that scatter the page of Nehemiah chapter 11. Essentially, this chapter is just a bunch of details. But think about it. These names feel overwhelming in the details to us. But each of these names represents a lifetime of details that God orchestrated. And had specific reasons and purposes for every single thing and detail going on in each of their lives. And then think about, that's not only true for the names on this page and for our lives, but for every single name that has ever existed in the history of the world since the beginning of time to the end. God has specific purposes for every single detail in the life of every single person. God is as involved in the tiniest little plans and details of your everyday life as He was in people like Ginnathoi and Abijah and Bakbukiah. Just because their names appear in the Bible and yours doesn't, doesn't mean that God is any less involved in the details of every single person who is here this morning. We may never know how He's working and what He's doing this side of heaven. But God knows. He is filling his holy city with persons who have lots of intimate details in their lives. And he is a God who is at work even in every single one of the tiniest details. I think Nehemiah chapter 11 reminds us that the gospel is not hypothetical. You know, uh, it's not a hypothetical message about a cross that brings hypothetical salvation for a hypothetical people who might hypothetically sometime in the future believe and be saved. It is the good news that real salvation has come to real persons through a real Savior. Each of our lives shows that the salvation that is promised in the Bible is actually real because we see it come to life in the lives of individual persons. What does it look like to be transferred from darkness into the king of his beloved son? Look at your life. People from the outside looking in should see salvation on display, the message of the gospel from start to finish, playing out in your individual life. What does it look like? We'll just look at the lives of the people here this morning. Our lives are an exegesis of the gospel, a laying out of all of these truths. They play out in our lives because God is a God who fills the holy city with persons, people who are actually saved by Jesus Christ. You know, I don't know who any of the people on this page are, 
But I can guarantee you that all the people on this page knew each other. It's not very many people. And they're all living in this giant city, banded together, and they've been working side by side. You know, on our page, the gospel is being lived out in our specific lives with individuals that many people, if you were to write our names on a page and have them read it in church, it would be just as familiar as these names on the page. But we know each other. And we know how the gospel is being played out in our lives. And God knows, most importantly, number one, the holy city is filled with persons. Secondly, the holy city is filled according to God's will. It's filled according to God's will. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in their other towns. So when the people in the Old Testament needed to make a decision and they were seeking the will of God, they would cast lots. And uh, casting lots is kind of like rolling dice. And you might think to yourself, so they're just, rolling, they're just leaving it up to chance who gets chosen? You know, which one out of ten gets chosen? No, the people believed so much in the sovereignty of God that God was even in control as to which side of the die it would fall on. That's how much they trusted in God to reveal His will to them. As they cast each lot and it fell to a certain family or a certain person, they trusted that that was God selecting those people by His will to live in His city. Just on a practical note, we don't cast lots anymore. The last time the people of God cast lots was in Acts chapter 1 when Peter and the uh, disciples needed to replace Judas. If you remember the story, they cast lots and they're discerning the will of God. But what happens in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit falls. We don't have to cast lots anymore because we have the Spirit inside of us to help us to discern the will of God. But why did the lot fall to one person and not to another? Why did God choose certain families to move into the holy city and not others? We don't know. We don't know. But here's what we do know. Nehemiah chapter 11 is the solution to a problem that was revealed all the way back in chapter 7. This city is empty. But we realize now as we finally in chapter 11 get to filling the city, that the city is going to be filled according to God's will. You see, because before the holy, could be fit, holy city could be filled, there had to be conviction of sin. Nehemiah chapter 8, that's exactly what happens. The people gather in the square in the city of Jerusalem, and they hear the reading of the law. And they begin to feel conviction because... As the law is read out, they realize all the ways they've disobeyed God. All of the ways they've been stiff-necked and hard-hearted and they begin to weep over all the ways that they've broken their commands of God and they've broken the relationship and been unfaithful over and over again. Before the holy city could be filled, there had to be confession of sin. Not only conviction under the law, but confession. That's what happens in chapter 9. The people gather together again and they begin to confess all the ways that they've broken 
God's commands. They tell the truth about God that He is holy, that He's righteous, that He's faithful, and yet they have been unholy, unrighteous, unfaithful over and over again. And they list out all the ways that they have disobeyed, all the things they've done wrong. Before the holy city could be filled, there had to be repentance. That's what we find at the end of chapter 9, as the people cry out for mercy from the Lord. We know we've done all these terrible things, but we're coming back to you, Lord. We're throwing ourselves at your feet, and we're begging you for mercy. We're coming, we're turning away from our sins, and we're returning to you, Lord. Please, forgive us. And finally, before the holy city could be filled, there had to be a new covenant, which is what we have in chapter 10. The people renew their vows to the Lord in a written, binding, sanctifying, costly covenant. So friends, if you're here this morning and you want to spend an eternity in the presence of the Lord in His holy city, You can't just waltz through the gates. You enter that city according to God's will. And it starts with an experience of true conviction over your sin. The Bible says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you know this to be true of yourself? In very specific ways that you have obeyed, disobeyed God over and over again and sinned against His commandments. In the depths of your soul, do you know how undeserving you are of His grace and favor? That if there's anyone who doesn't deserve to dwell with God in His holy city, it's me. I'm the one with filthy hands and an impure heart. God's will for you is to confess all of these sins to Him. The thing that you don't want to do, you want to hide, you want to, you want to keep these things hidden, you don't want to admit the truth about yourself, that is the thing that you must do before you can enter His city. Don't hide. Don't lie. Confess your sins to God. God's will for you is to repent. Repent means we throw those sins in the garbage and we turn back to God and we beg and we plead for Him to have mercy on us even though we do not deserve it. And finally, God's will is for you to believe in the new covenant that Jesus has established through His blood on the cross. Believe that God sent His Son to die on a cross in your place, even though you didn't deserve it, so that you could be forgiven in Jesus' name. To suffer the punishment that you deserve. To believe the impossible has happened. The blood of Jesus poured out on the cross washes away all of your guilt and your shame. And that He has been risen in power as your King. And that even now He sits on the throne in the new Jerusalem. And that you are waiting with hope that one day He's coming back. Believing that one day you will see Him and be with Him forever when He returns. And if 
you, if that is how you approach the holy city, that you have conviction, confession, repentance, and belief in Jesus Christ and His new covenant, you will be saved. Number two, the holy city is filled according to God's will. James puts it this way, of God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Which brings us to our third point this morning, which is this, the holy city is filled with first fruits. Listen again to verse 1. It tells us that the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained outside in their other towns. So, God selects one-tenth of the people. The church word we use for that is what? Tithe, right? God selects a tithe out from the people to come and live in this new holy city. If you add up all the numbers of all the people who moved in chapter 11, it adds up to 3,044. That's hardly the population of a village, let alone even close to a city. 3,044 people. And yet we're told that Jerusalem is this wide and broad city. So what the Lord is doing here is He's giving the people hope. Because He's only selected a tithe, a first fruit, to come and dwell in the city because it's a first fruit of what? They hope is to come. The hope is that generation to generation, the city will grow. The people inside these walls and the holy city will be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole city. When we look around at College Street Baptist Church, we might see how small we are, how much room we have to grow. Brothers and sisters, God does that to his people as a way of encouraging them, not discouraging them. Jesus told us that this is exactly how the kingdom would go. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make a nest in its branches. Brothers and sisters, the holy city is filled with first fruits, not last fruits. This is the beginning of what God is doing. As we share the gospel and the love of Christ with our neighbors, with our co-workers, our family, our friends, our children, our classmates, our roommates, the holy city will multiply and grow. The holy city is a city of hope. This city will be filled and we trust and we believe that the Lord is going to fill His city even through our efforts. That's what chapter 12 is all about. It's it's the handing down of the faith. You have the first generation of Levites and priests who came to Jerusalem to live there and then handing off the mantle to the second generation of priests who lived in the holy city. It's our firm belief that we are a first fruits, that we're only 10% of what God plans to do through College Street Baptist Church. That is what drives us to hand down the faith, 
to do discipleship classes, to teach the gospel to our children, to go into our neighborhoods and share the good news because we believe God is going to bring about another generation and then another generation and that our church will grow and multiply because we are only the first fruits. Finally, and this is, I think, maybe the sweetest point Number four, the holy city is filled with willing hearts. The holy city is filled with willing hearts. Did you see that in verse two? And the people blessed all of the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. They were willing to pack up everything. Their families, their homes, all of their possessions, and move into a city that was essentially a big wall around nothing. (laughs) No homes, no markets, no neighborhoods, no businesses, but there was one thing standing in the middle of this city. Do you know what it was? The temple. The house of God. And the people who willingly offered themselves to live in that holy city were willing to sacrifice to be in a city that bears the name of the Lord. The holy city is filled with willing hearts. And perhaps this is the thing that most excites me about Collins Street Baptist Church week in and week out and like days like yesterday is that I see that we are a church that is just overflowing and abundant with willing hearts. I'm reminded of a year back when uh, Sarah and Kendall were finishing their degree at Newberry College and they came to us and asked us to pray that the Lord would provide jobs so that they wouldn't have to leave College Street Baptist Church. They could have certainly found jobs down in Columbia or up in Greenville where there are much larger churches with much more going on, but they said, we want to stay. I think about... Tony and Richie, who I know over the past five years have been the glue that has held this church together through seasons of difficulty and rejoicing, and they have willingly over and over again submitted themselves to the work. I think about Joey and Katie. When it's been more than four years ago, I called Joey and talked to him, and they were at a much larger church with more means and ministry going on, and I said, Joey, I need you guys. And they said, we're willing are willing to come. I think about all the families who have come, the Sanders, uh, the Greens, the Dickerts, the Wolves, who could all take their children to churches that have better children's ministries and more going on, and yet you have all willingly chosen to come and be here, to be members and to join with College Street Baptist Church. even though we ask them to volunteer and miss Sunday school and miss church to take care of their own children some of the time. Or I think about Miss Gaynell and Mr. David and Miss Joy who have been faithful members here and are willingly receiving fresh faces and children into this church and celebrating the new work that God is doing here. I think about Tracy and David who many of you don't know, but are working faithfully behind the scenes week in, week out, month in, month out, making phone calls, 
arranging for repairs, printing bulletins, and doing all kinds of things that just help keep this church moving and working. I think about my own wife, Mindy, who has perhaps the most willing heart of any of us here. But even just one example, many years ago when Miss uh, Sweet Jackie Boozer got sick and no one stepped up to play piano, Mindy was willing even though it was the last thing that she wanted to do, <laughs> she stepped forward and was willing. You know, I've been at College Street Baptist Church for five years now. And if I were a different man, this would be the perfect time for me to be putting together my resume. I've got lots of nice little accomplishments to put on there. And I've got a beautiful family. Time to move on. Find bigger and better things. But that's not why I'm here. I'm here because I want to be with my brothers and sisters, a church filled with willing hearts. The Holy City is full of people with willing hearts, hearts that God's given us. The Lord draws people into his neighborhood who want to be there, who want to live and rub shoulders with the Lord. People who count the cost and follow Jesus. People who are willing to sacrifice for the sake of the Gospels. And brothers and sisters, I can say with a clear conscience, that is true of our members here at College Street Baptist Church. So may it evermore so be true. The Holy City is filled with persons. It's filled according to God's will. It's filled with first fruits and it's filled with willing hearts. You know, there's just one major difference that I recognized as I was reading this long list. Difference between Nehemiah's Jerusalem and the Jerusalem that we all belong to. And it's this. Our Jerusalem has a king sitting on the throne. And so we know it will never come to an end. One day that king is going to come back to live with us forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are seated on the throne waiting for your enemies to be made a footstool and that you have promised, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And yet, Lord Jesus, we long for the day when this new heavens and new earth comes about and you come down on your throne and the dwelling of God is with man forever. Lord Jesus, we trust in you, we hope in you, we ask Help us to trust that you have a reason for the things you're doing in our lives, that you're working all of these things according to your will, that this is only the beginning of what you're doing. God, continue to give us willing hearts. We trust all these things to your care, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.